Gilkinson. It's also your introduction to Activist Radio, where we offer history you didn't learn in high school. We have a couple of news stories you haven't seen in the New York Times, and we have some musical selections to help you join the resistance. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays, 8 to 9 a.m. on KBOO, and there's uh, they're located at 90.7 FM in Portland, Oregon. Thursdays, 11 to 12 noon on WRFA, and they're at 107.9 FM in Jamestown, New York. Thursdays, 5 to 6 p.m. on WBKR, 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Thursdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on WBDY, and they're at 99.5 FM at the Bundy in Binghamton, New York. Sundays 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. on WESU, and they're at 88.1 FM at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. from WIOF, and they're at 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. And Sundays 5 to 6 from the Progressive Radio Network, and you can tune that program in at prn.live. Past programs are available as a podcast, of course, just search on Activist Radio. Or anytime on the web, go to classwars.org. Our last 10 programs are right there. Our guest today is going to be Walden Bello. He's an internationally known scholar, activist, author, professor emeritus at the University of the Philippines, winner of the Right Livelihood Award. And we take a close look at how some societies well transition from democracy to fascism. An interesting discussion today that'll come out around. Uh, 30 minutes into the program, a very interesting uh, look at the history of fascism. Which brings us to the views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, it's not in, of its board of directors, its constituents, just the views of me, Fred, and I'm bringing you up to date on America's hidden class wars.
And that's The People's Day by Otis Gibbs. Uh, it's an introduction also to the first part of Activist Radio. We call it history. We're pretty sure you didn't learn in any school, high school, college, uh, church school. You didn't learn this history any place because it's hidden from you. Uh, it's a part of Activist Radio when we try to remember what the history of social struggle really is. Um, and it's so important that we know this because it's left out of our corporate media, completely left out. Alright, we go in history to January 4th, 1965. The free speech movement held its first rally in Sproul Plaza of the University of California at Berkeley. It was to be a massive, long-lasting student protest, and it marked the very first act of civil disobedience on any campus during the 1960s. All the students wanted was the right to free speech and academic freedom on their campuses, and early on they had decided not to compromise on these basic rights. Of course, the movement was influenced by what some have called the New Left, a variation of traditional progressive movements found in the 1930s and 1940s. For the 1960s era, the movement included an emphasis on civil rights, feminism, gay rights, drug policy reforms, and neo-Marxism. So in the fall of 1964, some students who had spent time with the Freedom Riders the previous summer set up an information table on campus. They also took donations for various civil rights campaigns. And it was here that the university drew the line. Fundraising for political parties on campus was limited to the two major political parties, and there were no exceptions. The rights of college teachers uh, was also part of the free speech movement. All teachers employed by the university were, were required to sign a loyalty oath which specifically uh, forbade what it was called radical, quote, radical beliefs. In 1965, the battle was still raging, although the Supreme Court had been striking down some loyalty oaths since the late 1950s. But loyalty oaths were still a part of the free speech movement. On October 1, 1964, a graduate student named Jack Weinberg was sitting by a core uh, table on campus, core courses, Congress of Racial Equality. When the police arrived, he refused to show his identification and was arrested. But taking him to jail became another problem. The police got him to the squad car, but 3,000 students didn't get out of the way. <laughs> they couldn't leave. In fact, they made the top of the police car a podium, and various speakers climbed aboard to give their opinions to the ever-growing crowd. The police car, with Weinberg inside it, stayed there and stayed where it was for the next 32 hours. Eventually, the charges against Weinberg were dropped. And let's hear uh, Mario Savio's famous speech. Now, his speech uh, actually comes on December 2nd, when up, up to 4,000 students went into Sproul Hall 
to reopen negotiations on political speech on campus. Well, this is uh, Mario Savio's famous speech, so we're going to listen to that. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Well, that was a, a beautiful speech, and we've played that before, as a matter of fact, several times before. Uh, one of my favorites, so I'm sure it'll come up again on another program. As a matter of fact, it comes up a little bit later when we do our, our song as well. Well, we had 4,000 students in uh, sitting in Sprawl Hall. Um, the four leaders of the free speech action had been arrested. The crowd wanted the charges dropped. The entire action was very organized and nonviolent. Students watched free speech movies, listened to folk songs. Uh, they had freedom classes uh, held on one floor. They had a special Hanukkah service taking place in the main lobby. And of course, there was Joan Baez to lead the singing uh, of free speech songs. And of course, we just heard Mario Savio give his famous speech on the steps outside. In fact, it was his birthday that, and everybody sang him happy birthday before he made the, his famous speech. I've played it before. It's pure genius, worth repeating on every activist radio program I do. Well, what the free speech movement did was to open up all discussion on campuses across the country. Discussions on racism, the right to vote. America's uh, pending war in Vietnam, and the draft. The Palestinian rights movement has the same power. Once students can share their opinions on an open campus, they come to the right conclusions. Not only must Palestinians be free from apartheid and genocide, but American students must be given the right to express themselves about racism about the gross inequality between the working class and the filthy rich, about this nation of ours that continuously fights wars in the third world countries. Yes, these are topics that the political class doesn't want us to talk about, that the scum that run our nation's businesses don't appreciate hearing, and that our college presidents resent us knowing. And these are the truths about our society that we have to understand if we have any hope of ending the military empire, which is the biggest secret in our supposedly free society. Okay, let's go to listen to those words again, this time uh, said by Utah Phillips uh, in a joint um, recording with Ann Feeney, recording is a uh, rich man's house. Let's listen to that. There comes a time when the operation of the machine is so odious that you cannot even tacitly participate. You've got to place your body on the gears, the levers, all the apparatus. You've got to indicate to those who own it and those who run it that unless you are free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Well, I went down to the rich man's house and I took 
you stole from me Took it back, took back my dignity Took back my humanity Oh, I went down to the rich man's house And I took back what he stole from me Took it back, took back my dignity Took it back, took back my humanity Now he's under my feet, under my feet under my feet, under my feet, ain't gonna let the system walk all over me. Well, I went down to the landlord's house and I took back what he stole from me. Took it back, took back my dignity. Took it back, took back my humanity. Oh, I went down to the landlord's house and I They lied by Jay Mankita. We use it to introduce the next part of Activist Radio. Got its own website, fantasylandmedia.org, uh, which has a compilation of uh, media lies over the last 10 to 12 years, all keyword searchable. Uh, we think it's a, a good way to take a look at the failings of our corporate-controlled media, where all the news is made by the people in charge. We know who those people are, too, the corporations, the CEOs, and your very own government. Our first story is from Common Dreams. 
Quote, as a self-proclaimed observant practicing Catholic, Joe Biden, you have not only failed to heed Pope Francis's figurative encyclical regarding Gaza, but are shipping billions of dollars of weapons into the arsenal of the Israeli government. We and many other organizations and peaceful protesters in our country have worked in vain to persuade President Joe Biden to use his influence to have the Israeli regime agree to a ceasefire that would allow hundreds of humanitarian aid trucks daily into the devastated graveyard that is now the Gaza Strip. Biden regularly begs Israel to let in more trucks, paid for by the U.S., at the same time the Biden administration exercises veto power on the U.N. Security Council's blocking a ceasefire, truce, or negotiation towards a permanent two-state resolution. A ceasefire would at least allow aid to reach the besieged. According to Professor Davi Sridhar, chair of the Global public health at the University of Edinburgh, unless something changes, the world faces the prospect of almost a quarter of Gaza's two million population, close to half a million human beings, can die within a year. Well, this article was written by Ralph Nader and Bruce Fine. It goes well beyond our mainstream media in predicting a genocide in Gaza. Millions of people around the world fear this outcome. Why doesn't our media want to look ahead and predict what constant bombing, starvation, loss of shelter will do to millions of displaced Palestinians? Is it because our media doesn't want to be responsible? And isn't that as hypocritical as Joe Biden talking about peace while sending Israel more bombs? Our second story today is from the Financial Times. The order books of the world's biggest defense companies are near record highs after growing by more than 10% in the last two years because of rising geopolitical tensions, including the conflict in Ukraine. An analysis of the Financial Times of 15 defense groups, including the largest UN contractors, found this exceptional rise. The trend's momentum continued into 2023. In the first six months of the year, the latest comprehensive quarterly data available combined backlogs at these companies stood at $764 billion, swelling their future pipeline of work as governments kept placing orders. The sustained spending has spurred the investors' interest in the sector, MSCI's global benchmark for the industry stock is up 25% over the next 12 months. Well, it's let the good times roll, isn't it, when it comes to defense contractors. Western factories can't even pump out enough bombs and bullets for the hearts of Palestinians in Gaza. In fact, this n article never gets around to mention Gaza at all. It's like U.S. weapons manufacturers have played no part in the extermination of the Palestinians. New York Times has run similar stories, but it always, they always mention Ukraine rather than Gaza. Readers can tell how sensitive these weapons makers must be about being linked to a genocide. And our media can't bring itself to mention the connection. Our last story is from 
and Jacobin. Early this month, the Biden administration joined governments around the world in marking the 25th anniversary of the Convention on the Palestinian and Punishment of Crime of Genocide, adopted by the United Nations General Assembly on December 9th, back in 1948. At the same time, U.S. government officials were trying to fend off a legal action accusing them of complicity with Israel's unfold, quote, unfolding genocide of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Now the South African government has filed a case with the International Court of Justice invoking the Genocide Convention and accusing Israel of, quote, genocidal acts. Some commentators have contemptuously dismissed the idea that Israel's war on Gaza should be considered genocidal. They consider it as a concept as an absurdity. But academic experts have presented the question in a very different light and insisted on the need for urgent, moral, serious debate. The dismissive attitudes to the charge of genocide portrays two forms of ignorance. The first concerns the definition of genocide in the convention itself. Though that definition is greatly influenced by the crimes of Nazism, it's understood of genocide also applies to a wider set of cases. The second form of genocide concerns the deliberate murderous nature of the Israeli onslaught on the people of Gaza and the overly genocidal rhetoric that government officials have used to justify it. Well, this story was picked up by Code Pink, Vox, uh, even Israel's newspaper Haaretz. Um, why no mainstream media in this country picked the story up? Perhaps this story will be like the tale of the emperor who had no clothes. Once a country points out that the U.S. and Israel are involved in the worst genocide of the 21st century, why, everyone will finally realize the terrible truth. Well, we're going to go to uh, a special look. Uh, this year marks the 80th year anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And I was interested to see what the BBC said this year about the armed revolt of Polish Jews in Warsaw and its commemoration. And can we listen to this description by the BBC without thinking about Hamas's suicide attack on Israel? Let's listen to that. Correspondent Adam Easton joins me now. Adam, tell us about the commemorations today and remind us of the history of this uprising. I'm stood in front of the uh, Museum of the History of uh, Polish Jews, which, beside which is a monument to uh, the heroes of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. And at that monument, the presidents of Germany, Israel and Poland will gather in a couple of hours' time and give speeches and lay wreaths. And it's the first time, in fact, that a German head of state has been invited to speak at such an event. Um, this, it's hard to believe now, but I'm stood at the heart of the former Warsaw Ghetto. It was leveled to the ground, raised to the ground by the Germans in 1943. At its height, close to half a million people were imprisoned here by the German army behind very tall brick walls. They had basic uh, rations, not enough really to almost live on, 
Many people died from starvation. Many people died from typhus, from other diseases. They couldn't get out, which spread like wildfire in this closed environment. In 1939, this, this city was home to the world's largest Jewish community outside New York. It was vibrant. It was full of life. There was workshops. There were shops. There were people speaking Yiddish on the street. Now it looks so different. Um, and most of the people in the Warsaw Ghetto were murdered in the Treblinka death camp or they died of starvation or disease. But in April 1943, just before the Germans wanted to uh, embark on the final deportations from the ghetto, a group of about 500 young Jewish men and women who knew what their fate was at that point, there was no doubt about it. They knew that they were going to be taken to Treblinka and they decided that instead of that, they would not go to their deaths like lambs to the slaughter. They would stand up and fight. And even though they were only armed with pistols and grenades against the might of the German army, they took that brave decision, even though they knew they were likely to die. And the German army knew that there would be resistance to these final deportations, but they estimated that the resistance would be quelled within about three days. But in fact, that fighting went on for about three weeks until it was extinguished. And then the Germans um, destroyed, leveled this area brick by brick, set it all on fire. And this, one of the most remarkable acts of uh, defiance in the Second World War, is being remembered today by the presidents of the three people of the three countries I mentioned, and also by people around the world. Adam in Warsaw for now. Thank you. We'll have plenty more on those commemorations, of course, throughout. All right, that's uh, an eerie reflection of Gaza, isn't it? Um, pretty much the same thing. The inmates in an open-air prison trying to break out. Uh, and trying to survive, essentially, and willing to fight even though they realize it probably is hopeless. Um, the resistance, Hamas's resistance, of course, is exactly the same thing. Uh, we're going to go to our guest now. Uh, his name is Walden Bilo. He's an international scholar and activist, Professor Emeritus, University of Philippines, winner of the Right Livelihood Award. And we take a close look about how some societies transition from a vibrant democracy to the depths of fascism. So let's introduce Walden Below. Okay, Dr. Walden Bellow, thank you so much for being on Activist Radio today. Thank you for inviting me, Fred. Uh, you uh, taught at SUNY Binghamton, and that was after uh, teaching for a whole career, uh, teaching at the University of the Philippines. Uh, you also got your PhD at Princeton. Um, what was your focus on, uh, on teaching? Did you have a focus, and did it involve uh, didn't have an international context, uh, you having taught in both the U.S. Uh, and the Philippines? Uh, well, um, I uh, was, uh, I ba basically got my PhD back in 
75. And uh, my work was really on the rise of the counter-revolution in Chile. And I shortly after I got my PhD, I, I went into full-time activist work. Um, uh, at that time, I was, uh, you know, a, a part of the uh, Philippine um, movement against Marcos. And uh, I really did uh, organizing work for 15 years. And um, I didn't get back into academic work until about 20 years later in the Philippines. Uh -huh. And uh, so m most of my teaching was in sociology and in uh, political economy. Uh -huh. And that's 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 my that was the sort of academic work that I did, but um, academic work was always secondary to my activist work until now. <laughs> you uh, you really have uh, paid your price for being a human rights campaigner. Uh, I noticed uh, looking at your bio that. You're even arrested uh, and sent to jail for a while for uh, demonstrating for human rights in the Philippines, but that was in uh, that was in California, right? Uh, yes, uh, I was um, uh, in the United States um, for quite some time um, because I couldn't return to the Philippines. Uh, that was the period of the Marcos government. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was helping out mainly in organizing in the United States to cut off military aid to Marcos. And that's the context in which we got arrested uh, back in 1978 uh, for seizing the Philippine embassy. This was one of several um um, actions and arrests and jailing that I had uh, during that time. Um, so, so uh, you really uh, weren't weren't jailed in the in the Philippines. Uh, no, no, I I only came I got back to the Philippines uh, after Marcos was overthrown back in the late eighties. Right. No? And uh, ever since then, I've been in, in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of my work has been mainly against globalization and against uh, U.S. Uh, imperial uh, mm -hmm. intervention in right. a number of different countries. I discovered the history of the Philippines really late. It was really, uh, I think, my senior year of college. and. I didn't get it from a course. I got it from, you know, anti-Vietnam protesting and mm -hmm. uh, learning about the history. What is the history of the Philippines and uh, why are Americans so ignorant of this history? Because we have a long history, don't we? It goes all the way back to 18, uh, what, 95 or, you know, when was the invasion of the Philippines? Uh, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, over a hundred years ago. Anyway, what don't we know? What what don't Americans know about the Philippines? And our well, the, 
the Philippines uh, was uh, a Spanish colony until uh, around the 1896-1897 when the Philippine Revolution against Spain took place and it was a big national revolution and uh, this was also the time that the U.S. was expanding as an imperial power mm -hmm. and uh, so just when the revolutionaries in the Philippines uh, had um, managed to basically uh, uh, um, reduce Spain's position in the Philippines to just control of the city of Manila, uh, the United States intervened and took over from Spain. Mm. Uh, the And uh, what happened then was that the the the, what was called the Philippine-American War broke out uh, because the Philippine revolutionaries were not about to trade one colonial master for another. And that uh, between 1899 and 1902, the U.S. waged a bloody counterinsurgency war that resulted in the uh, loss of lives uh, of some... Uh, 500,000 Filipinos, which was fairly big at that time. So it was a big major overseas counterinsurgency campaign of the United States. Of course, the U.S. had been carrying out counterinsurgency against uh, Native Americans for a long time, but they exported many of the techniques that they had perfected in fighting uh, 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 Native Americans to the Philippines. So it was sort of... Um, from the Philippine, from the U.S. Army point of view, it was an extension of what they call the Indian Wars, uh, and it was very bloody. Uh, but uh, some other people call it the first Vietnam, uh, uh, or Vietnam could be called the second Philippines. You know, so. But uh, in any event, this is um, uh, that was the beginning of the relationship with the United States. And do you think that's why that's never taught in school? Because it just is so uh, reminiscent of the Vietnam experience. Uh, I mean, we went in and killed, well, two to three million. It was an incredibly bloody intervention, uh, a colonial uh, grab at another country. Um, do you think that's uh, one of the reasons that it's never taught? It's never really considered? Well, I'm... Uh... Or maybe well, there are references to it, but it's. Um, I I think what happens is that the. It it was it was for a long time framed as a war to bring civilization to Filipinos, yeah. uh, you know that it was sort of the white man's burden kind of yeah. kind of uh, experience, and uh, uh, so the 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 Philippines is pictured as uh, a kind of example of American benevolence uh, that we were we were uh, we were taught the, the basics of democracy as they put it and then uh, given formal independence back in 1945 so that's the master narrative about the Philippines and as you can see it hides so many uh, 
uh, things that came with it, which was the counterinsurgency, the you know the loss of uh, five hundred thousand lives, the you know basically the the extension of the what they call the Indian Wars into the Far East at that time, uh, and uh, so it was um, uh, it was um, America's first. Uh, major colonial venture outside of the continental United States. Right. Uh, and uh, it was, it, it, so a lot of the unsavory things about it have not been really picked up. Yeah. Um, of course, in recent history books, I'm not sure if that's, that's the case, but um, uh, certainly I would not be surprised if the, the Philippines continues to be Mainly sidelined, uh, you know, as as uh, as a subject matter of concern to American yeah. students. Well, I was drafted in the army, of course, and uh, so I was part of the anti-war movement, and uh, we studied about the Philippines and uh, the various campaigns, um, the trickery of uh, assassinating one of the leaders. That was very interesting to. The leftist uh, demonstrators against the Vietnam War. So that's where I learned my uh, history of your country. Uh, a more modern history would be Marcos, and uh, he ruled for a long time. And how did he gain power? And was the U.S. at all involved in in Marcos? Well, Marcos uh, was. Uh initially elected president of the Philippines back in 1964-65. And, um, uh, um, but he wanted to remain in power after the constitutional limits on his tenure mm -hmm. um, uh, were up. So he declared a dictatorship back in 1972. And that went on till 1986. So it was about 14 years of mm. the dictatorship. And during that time, he enjoyed uh, the full support of the United States uh, from the time of Nixon to the time of uh, uh, the Carter, Kissing, uh, uh, Nixon, um, Reagan, uh, Reagan, and uh, all the way up to up to nineteen eighty six, when the United States decided to dump him mm. because uh, he no longer uh, the United States could no longer afford to support him in power. So that's uh, that's that's uh, that's basically, in a nutshell, what Marcos was all about. But he, um, um, there were. Uh, quite a number of um, uh, human rights atrocities that were committed under his reign. Um, and uh, when I was a member of the Philippine Congress, we passed a law uh, compensating the victims of uh, what we call martial law or the dictatorship. Uh, and we basically allocated around 11,000 uh, compensation for 11,000 people who had either directly or a member of their family had suffered uh, from um, uh, human rights violations. Mm. Uh, so it was, uh, it was 
so it was a fairly widespread uh, uh, kind of dictatorial rule uh, in its consequences. Does that leave, uh, does your history leave the country not really trusting the U.S.? Um, you know, does it leave the country with with a memory of the type of oppression that the United States has uh, visited um, on the Philippines? Is, is that a long lasting uh, memory? I mean, people, there's nobody around still from the uh, in, initial invasion of the Philippines, um, but- uh, Well, um, unfortunately not. I, I think the, uh, basically the Philippine elite uh, after the U.S. invasion uh, back in the early uh, 20th century um, cooperated to bring about some form of liberal democracy in the Philippines, uh, which was uh, basically uh, providing for some competition among the elites for political power, but basically uniting them in any sort of uh, uniting them against the lower classes. So pretty much uh, what happened to you was you had some sort of an Amer American system of uh, formal democracy that was imposed in the country. And uh, so the, the sense of what happened during the American invasion was really wiped out in the Philippine consciousness. Mm. Uh, and... Uh, but uh, this was also affected by the fact that Japan invaded the Philippines back in sure. 1941. And it was a fairly brutal Japanese occupation. Uh, and uh, the uh, when the Americans came back in 1945, 44 and 1945, they were pretty much painted as liberators of right. the Philippines from Japanese rule. Uh, and so, so I, uh, I I guess you might say that the memory of the the um, the um, uh, uh, repression that was exercised by the United States at the turn of the twentieth century was pretty much um, um, very much weakened. Mm. Uh, of course, the left in the Philippines, uh, especially the resurrected left back in the early seventies. Uh, uh, has really tried very hard to um, bring uh, to to get the Philippine uh, the Filipinos to realize the colonial history imposed by the United States on them. Mm. Uh, so yes, the the bearers of that memory would be the left in the Philippines. I see. I see. So there, there's that. Uh, there is that. Uh, uh, you know, sense that there was in fact you know uh, colonial subjugation yeah, I, but i would say that with the majority of the population um the, the us is seen in some sort of uh, a light as you know sort of uh, promoting democracy in the philippines you know? so it's, it's one of those it's Com one of the more complex uh, you know than than that right uh, yes yes yeah Right. And of course, uh, 
the um, there has been a lot of uh, immigration from the Philippines to the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, there is um, you know um, there is among a large part of the population, uh, as in many other developing countries, uh, a sense that you know the United States uh, is a place where uh, uh, you you go and make your fortune sort of th that sort of thing so you know it's uh, as you said it's a bit it's a bit more complex than than uh just remembering the time that the country was subjugated by the united states but nevertheless uh, the important thing is that uh, uh recent versions of history that have been used in schools um uh, do mention the what happened at the turn of the the 20th century so but it's still a struggle as you know to to maintain that sort of um um uh, you know that sense of consciousness of uh, of, of um being uh, occupied and uh yeah yes and yeah. it's the colonialism do do colonialism is that yes yeah right yeah american colonialism yes um but i guess this should not be unfamiliar to you in the United States, right? In the sense that even the the history of the, uh, you know, the the fight for liberation among African-Americans is now being seen as sort of a, what do they call it now? It's um, the right wing is, 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 is definitely... Call it, they're calling it woke now and they want to get rid of it. The right wing wants to get rid of it. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, that's uh, David Vine on our program. Actually, he's been on Activist Radio twice, and his book is about the 800 U.S. military bases in the rest of the world. And I was sent to one of them. I was sent to the uh, the end of the 1960s. I spent a year in Korea uh, mm -hmm. near the DMZ in Korea, mm -hmm. and um, I was struck actually by how similar. Uh, the Korean experience is to the Philippine, the Filipino experience in the fact that the U.S. troops never went home. I mean, 1945-46 was the end of the, the war, but still, I mean, we mm -hmm. have thousands of troops in Korea when I was there, even more now. Mm -hmm. And uh, the U.S. Mm -hmm. Army has huge bases in the Philippines. Isn't that true? Well, the, uh, the yes, you're definitely right. The troops never left Korea. They never left Japan. The Seventh Fleet never no. disbanded. the The Philippines uh, kicked out the U.S. bases back in 1991, 1992. Oh, really? Huh. But uh, but they are back now. Uh, under the over the last few years, the U.S. had had military agreements with the Philippines that has now resulted in nine u.s military bases in the in in the country oh my god really and uh yeah and they're all being used for the for the cold war against china or uh, you know to contain china so right. this is the this is the um the reason uh, it, uh... yeah right it's it's a you know more than the ukraine the south china sea south south that part of southeast asia is pretty much of a tinderbox at this point yeah. uh 
Um, but of course, the main tinderbox that we all find at this point is 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 Gaza, right? So <laughs> uh, that's that's uh, burning down. Uh, yes. The, the the reason I was interested in interviewing you is uh, the the work you've done on fascism, uh, how you uh, show that it's a problem in the U.S., um, how you show some of the uh, the concepts that uh, lead to fascism, like income uh, disparities, uh, corruption of the Congress. How did you become interested in fascism and uh, how it pertains to uh, you? You've one of your books calls the U.S. Uh, an empire, right? And that's pretty that's pretty radical because in the U.S. we don't we don't even know what that means. U.S. empire, we. <laughs> You're right. No one would, yeah. would use that except, uh, you know, for the left. Uh, mm -hmm. What made you interested in in, uh, in fascism and, you know, its resurgence all over the world? Well, um, the um, my first, uh, I I guess I got uh, interested in fascism in the sense that. Uh, uh, in the early 1970s, I went down to do my doctoral work on in Chile, uh, and this was during the period of Allende. And um, I I saw fairly quickly that the the revolution, uh, which was a democratic constitutional revolution, was being threatened by 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 the right wing in in Chile and this were you know basically a very heated mass movement from the right uh, which reminded me very much of the demonstrations that had occurred in 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 Nazi Germany uh, and this was sort of an elite led middle class counter revolution against the working class in Chile and uh, we all know what happened. There was, uh, uh, with U.S. assistance, uh, the uh, Allende was overthrown. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was very important in my experience that uh, that uh, to realize that you had this 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 big counter-revolutionary movement that uh, uh, you know that was the base for the overthrow of Allende. So ever since then, I've been quite interested in, um, in in how do fascist movements come about, mm. and uh, that's when I began looking at the experience of a number of different countries, and uh, how um, uh, one of the things that 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 uh, I've seen has been that neoliberal economic policies have really contributed to this mm -hmm. uh, in, in Europe and elsewhere uh, in the sense that um, uh, because of the stagnation of income, uh, because of the loss of jobs, the loss of employment, uh, because of the adoption of this very uh, pro-market policies, mm -hmm. um, many people have lost uh, faith in 
the traditional working class parties that, you know, in social democratic parties, labor parties that used to be the ones that that promoted the interests of uh, of workers. And uh, because these parties have, had compromised and accepted all of the so-called neoliberal reforms that were leading to the loss of jobs. So I think this was very critical in understanding, especially in Europe and in the United States, why, you know, figures like Trump uh, uh, emerged and uh, why you had all of this um, right-wing, far right-wing parties emerge in Europe. Uh, uh, that so, so that was why, uh, you know, neoliberalism and, and globalization, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, has in fact uh, contributed to the, to, the, to the rise of this, of this movements yeah. because it provided them with some sort of solidarity and a feeling of uh, being represented by yeah. these people. Being listened who, to. You know. Being listened to, yeah. you know. So I think that was that's one thing. The second thing that um, that I think is very worrisome, of course, is that um, uh, many of these movements, you know, are very much uh, 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 try to point to um, people of color, mm-hmm. immigrants, minorities right. as the cause of their problems. So uh, basically, they 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 project this idea that somehow the the liberal elite and the minorities, racial and cultural minorities, uh, are the problem uh, that uh, that that they're taking away what should rightfully in their view belong to the majority population so it's a very interesting and very dangerous uh, equation because they basically say okay we have solidarity and equality uh, but only for those of the right color the right skin uh, and you know the right culture and those who do not share those are outside the pale you know so uh so you can see how it sort of uh, reduces or tries to eliminate class differences uh, and to make the divide in the society instead uh, one on based on race, one based on culture, one based on you know religion yeah. rather than uh, based on 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 class. So I, I think that's that's sort of the that's sort of the second thing that really is very important. The third thing is, of course, that you have these charismatic individuals like Trump and others that that speak their language, uh, that speak this language that appeals to them, that's inflammatory. uh, And and they can they they feel that with all their troubles they can relate to it they can relate to this to this uh, a very inflammatory language that blames the, the their troubles on what they call the the you know the the, the elites the, and the woke the woke population yeah. well yeah, we're, right. we're well out of time but uh, Walden sure. I'd love to have you come back and talk more about fascism and uh, sure yes. I, I, I found your articles really fascinating, and I'll put links 
uh, to the articles when this <laughs> airs so people can read the articles. But I want to sure. thank you so much for being on Activist Radio today. That was really interesting. I, I appreciate you being on. Okay, thank you too. All right, goodbye now. Bye. Activist Radio can be heard Thursdays 5 to 6 p.m. on WVKR 91.3 FM at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Sundays 4 to 5 p.m. on WIOF 104.1 FM in Woodstock, New York. And Sundays 5 to 6 p.m. from the Progressive Radio Network PRN.FM. Past shows can be heard on ClassWars.org. Please like our Facebook page or read our Class Wars blog for commentary on today's interview. We'll be here next week at the same time to help you become part of the resistance.